came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday, the 1st of August, 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, global warming is real and it's happening to the planet you're on at this very moment. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today we continue our third and final part of an extended three-part interview with exobiologist Professor Jonty Horner, who in our previous two episodes told us about fingerprinting exoplanets, NASA, TESS, the new Minerva Australis Observatory, the myths of Jupiter, comet impacts, and panspermia. In today's episode, we hear about the inherent problems with using the term habitability, meteor showers, and rogue asteroids. Then, as usual, we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up, Doc, what's up in the sky for observers and astrophotographers for the next two weeks. And we'll finish up, as usual, with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So let's cross up to sunny Queensland now to speak with Jonty and hear Exobiology, Part 3. So we can have all sorts of exoplanets orbiting around all sorts of stars at all sorts of distances from hot Jupiters up close to rogue rocky exoplanets out in the cold depths of interstellar space. Let's talk about something you're known for, and that's habitability. Back in 2016, we had Dr. Elizabeth Tusker on the show from JAXA, and yep. she, she debunked the second Earth claims that were in the popular press about the habitability of Proxima Centauri b. And she went on to discuss how the metrics we're using to define habitability are problematic at best, given that sometimes the habitability metrics don't take into account the effects of atmospheric conditions on possible habitability. Look, I'm not expressing this well. I guess my question is, Professor Horner, is the Goldilocks zone still a thing? Oh, it's an interesting one. So I know Dr. Tasker and Elizabeth really well. We were actually undergrads together at Durham. She was a couple of years below me, so we actually went on a ski trip with colleagues together <laughs> when we were both, wow. both, both physics students back in the day. And she's been a very 
eloquent advocate for fair and sensible reporting of the planets that we find, I think, is the best way of describing it. Because one of the hooks that people hang discoveries on quite often, and it's often press officers at universities and things like this, pick up on the word habitable and get really excited and say, we found the planet that is the most Earth-like of any planet that we've ever discovered. Which is a bit like saying we've discovered a dolphin and it's the most human-like animal we've ever found. It's yeah. a little bit misleading, let's say. Yep. Now, habitability is one of these things that we're really interested in, but it's really up in the air still. And it's another of these concepts that is tied to one of our inherent biases. When we talk about planetary habitability, when we talk about the Goldilocks zone, things like this, you kind of assume that we're just saying if a planet is in the Goldilocks zone, it would have life. It's, if it's in the Goldilocks zone, it would be habitable. Whereas what we're actually saying is, if you took the Earth as it is today, with the exact conditions we have now, and put it in that planetary system at the location we found this planet, would the Earth still be like the Earth? Yep. It's a little bit different. And so if you look at the solar system, you could work out what we would expect the equilibrium temperature of the planets to be, just by assuming. So let's imagine for a moment we have no information about the atmospheres of the planets. Yep. We don't know what they're made of, we just know they're there and we know how far they are from the star. You can make a first estimate of their temperature, you can work out how much energy they receive from the star, and if you make an assumption about how reflective they are, you can estimate the temperature. Yep. And if you do that, you would come to the idea that Venus would be a bit warmer than the Earth, but should still have oceans. Yep. Venus would be habitable. It's at the inner edge of the Goldilocks zone, but it could still be habitable. In reality, the surface temperature on Venus is hot enough to melt lead. Yep. Certainly not a good place to live. And so the problem here is that we're trying to figure things out based on very scarce information, on very sparse information. We're trying to piece these things together. Now, the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone, has some merit as a teaching tool. So it's certainly true for a given planet of a given size, if you want that planet to have liquid water on its surface, so to be Earth-like in that sense, to be a habitable planet in the sense of it looks like the Earth, the closer you move it to the star, the hotter it'll be, the further away it is, the cooler it'll be. So you can imagine there's this happy middle where the temperature's just right, hence the Goldilocks zone. But in reality, a lot plays into that. A more massive planet may well have a more massive atmosphere. So that means that it will hold on to more of the heat. So at a location where a smaller planet would be habitable, the more massive one wouldn't be. It'd be too hot. Equally, the more massive planet might be habitable at a greater distance where the smaller planet would be too cold. It's a much more complicated, thorny issue. And it is very, very premature to say that we found Earth-like planets. We haven't yet. We found planets that are nearly Earth-sized that are very close to their stars. Or we found planets that are very, very big, but are about the same distance from their stars that the Earth is from the Sun. We found nothing that ticks all the boxes yet. Yeah. And I think Elizabeth has done a very, very good job of arguing more eloquently than I can why people should stop talking about planets in the context of them being Earth-like. So if nothing else, it gives people Earth fatigue, exo-Earth fatigue. Oh, we've just found another Earth-like planet. We've found thousands of them. So when we do find something that really is like the Earth, that is definitively wet, has oceans, people will just be almost like the boy who cried wolf. Why should we care? You've found hundreds of these things. Exactly. So it disengages people. And it's one of the reasons that I think people who can communicate science well should do so, because otherwise you get into these games where a researcher's not happy talking to the media. So what they do is they put out the paper, 
that the press office at their university reads and interprets to write a press release. The researcher doesn't like talking to the media, so doesn't engage with the press office, so the press office goes out saying something subtly different to the paper. The mainstream media, who don't have, in the main, science specialist journalists now, read that press release and write a story based on their understanding of the press release, which already misinterprets the paper. And you get this thing where the message gradually gets diluted, so you go from, we found a planet like Jupiter, to, oh, look, we found aliens. And the only way that you counter that is to engage with the communication yourself, to try and make sure that the message gets out correctly. And there are fabulous vehicles for that out there. Not every scientist can do that. Not everybody's a communicator in the same way that not everybody's a researcher. They're different skill sets. And that's why I think it's very important for people like Dr. Tasker, for people hopefully like myself, like the other guests you've had on in the past, who are comfortable talking about these things and are passionate about it to get out there and spread the word because it means that we get the right message out there. And the story at the minute is that we are not yet at the stage where we found Earth-like planets. So please stop saying we have people, you know. (laughs) We're going to get there, there's no doubt, but it's not there yet. Exactly. Thank you so much. That really needed clearing up. Now, Jonty, we recently had NASA running a conference on killer asteroids, basically. And you recently wrote about our recent meteor impact here on Earth, some of them here in Australia, for the conversation, which we'll talk about a bit later. But you've researched planetary dynamics and the origins of planets and planets like Mercury and trans-Neptunian objects, centaurs that you mentioned earlier, and trojans. Do we need an advanced warning system for planetary impacts here on Earth? We're kind of getting one just by nature of doing astronomy. We are looking for everything that could threaten the Earth. And it's absolutely true. It's absolutely the case that the Earth is in the firing line. We've been hit in the past. We will be hit again. And so we need to keep our eyes peeled. We need to look out for the things that pose a threat, essentially. But we're doing that. We have these fabulous surveys going out there, like the LSST that was mentioned earlier on, the largest synoptic scale telescope, like pan stars in Hawaii that are constantly scouring the skies, finding asteroids, finding comets, finding things that could threaten the Earth in the future. That's all happening, and those are the kind of surveys, incidentally, that Elon Musk's wonderful constellation actually does pose a threat to. So there's a challenge there. The reality is, though, the Earth is in the firing line. We see that any time that we go out and we see a meteor shower on an evening, we see bits of debris burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. And the solar system is riddled with debris. There's junk everywhere. There's more little stuff than big stuff, and so we're fairly safe in general. Most of the stuff that hits the Earth burns up harmlessly in the atmosphere. You might get a big explosion that's spectacular, but it's not going to threaten the Earth. But on longer timescales, the Earth will be hit again. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's definitely going to happen. Now, the amount of damage that is done by impacts depends on the size of the thing that hits us. Like I said, the very smallest things that hit the Earth actually don't burn up in the atmosphere. We get these things called micrometeorites, sometimes described as brownlee particles, that are essentially fragments of dust that are so small that they are slowed down by the Earth's incredibly tenuous outer atmosphere where the International Space Station is and beyond, before they get into atmosphere thick enough to cause them to burn up. And so on any day that you're outside, you will have some of these settling on your shoulders like interplanetary dandruff, essentially. That's (laughs) raining down on us all the time. At a larger scale, we have the bits of dust that burn up and give us meteors, that give us shooting stars. As you get bigger and bigger, those penetrate deeper into the atmosphere. 
and eventually you reach a situation where fragments can make it to the ground. And it's when those fragments reach the ground that we call them meteorites. The bits that we pick up are meteorites. Now, meteorites fall on a continent the size of Australia will probably happen 10 or 20 times per year. That's the frequency of the smaller impacts that can make it to the ground. The bigger you go, the less often it happens. An object the size of the Tunguska impact, yep. which exploded over Siberia in 1908, probably hits Earth once every 100 to once every 1,000 years on average. And that's the kind of thing that would level a city if it happened. The area that Tunguska leveled in terms of forest was comparable to the Greater Sydney Metropolitan Region, 2,200 square kilometres. Yep. So that's a worry, but you've got to remember that something like 99% of the Earth's surface isn't city. So nearly all the time they'll hit places that are fairly remote. The Chelyabinsk impact in 2013, of course, shows that that's not always guaranteed. That was a smaller impact than Tunguska, but still big enough to injure 1,500 people to damage 7,000 buildings. So it was certainly not small, certainly not something to be sniffed at. If you get bigger still, you get to the kind of things that cause a real problem, that pose a real threat. These are objects that may be a kilometre in size or more. Now, a kilometre-sized scale is usually held up as a bit of a benchmark here, because the idea is that the impact of a kilometre diameter asteroid would be the threshold, would be the boundary between being a regionally and a globally devastating event. Now, that sounds awfully cheerful. What we're saying there is that the impact of a one-kilometre asteroid would be expected to kill on average about a quarter of the world's population. Wow. This would be a bad day. That statistic is very misleading in a lot of ways, that you are more likely to die in an asteroid impact than you are in a plane crash. The thinking here is a kilometre-sized asteroid probably hits the Earth every 300,000 years or so on average. If it happens every 300,000 years and you kill 2 billion people every time, that's tens of thousands of people per year on average. So you're more likely to die in a plane crash. That statistic makes more sense if you think that you could live for 300,000 years, because the reality is the odds of an impact like that happening in your lifetime are vanishingly small. But it will happen again. And when I say every 300,000 years on average, or every 100 years on average for Tunguska, say, it doesn't mean that they come around as regular as clockwork. We had an impact 10 years ago, so we're safe for 90 years. They're like buses. You wait a million years and three come along at once. So we do need to keep watching. We need to keep our eyes peeled. And that's what these surveys are doing. Now, we're doing a fairly good job of it, and we're managing now to start going to the step beyond, which is considering what we'd do if we found something that was on a collision course. We actually have the ability now to do something about it, to take our destiny into our own hands, which I think is really important. Now, what you do is not what Hollywood says you'd do. If you've seen Armageddon, you get Bruce Willis, you train him to use nuclear (laughs) weapons, you fly him on the space shuttle, put him on an asteroid, and he blows it up, and everybody (laughs) cheers. If you did that, it would be catastrophically dumb. You would get rid of Bruce Willis, a nuclear weapon, and the space (laughs) shuttle, so depending on your point of view, that could be counted as a win. (laughs) But the fragments of the thing you blow up would keep moving in the same direction they were moving beforehand. So you take a single impact and you turn it into a shotgun blast. You make the situation worse, not better. So regardless of your thoughts on Bruce Willis, you really don't want to do this. What you instead want to do is deflect things. You want to Find a way to give a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a push that turns a potential hit into a definite miss. And a lot of research is going on into that at the moment. We have these fabulous missions going to asteroids that come near the Earth, landing on them and bringing back samples. I mean, how cool is that? We've got the Hayabusa and Hayabusa, two missions that are led by the Japanese. And 
we've got Osiris Rex led by the Americans. Hayabusa delivered a few grams of asteroidal material to Earth in 2005. Hayabusa, too, is going to drop more material into the outback in December 2020. And the OSIRIS-REx mission is on its way to do the same thing led by the Americans. That is showing us that we can go to asteroids and land on them, pick things up and run away from them. So there's an ambitious deflection test project called a gravity tractor that people are proposing to test, which is essentially a bigger version of these. You fly to your favourite asteroid, you land on the surface and pick up your most beloved boulder, the thing that you love most of all. You pick it up and fly a little way away from the asteroid, then you stop. And the gravitational pull of the boulder and the gravitational pull of the asteroid act on one another. The asteroid pulls the boulder back towards it, but the boulder exerts an equal and opposite force on the asteroid, pulling it a little bit towards the boulder. As the asteroid starts to approach, you fly a spacecraft carrying the boulder a bit further away, pulling the asteroid along behind you. It's called a gravity tractor, and it's essentially the slowest ever game of chase that has ever been played. It's really cheesy, but it could work, and it's one of the ways we're looking at deflecting things. There's also a lot of chat about the possibility of asteroid mining going on. The idea that we could go and land on these objects, dig up resources, send them back to Earth. And I'm fairly confident that in the next 10 or 20 years, that'll go from being science fiction to science fact. It's very commercially viable. People are looking at it as we speak. What is interesting from the point of view, an asteroid impact point of view, is that that same technique could be used to deflect things. If you land on an asteroid and dig a bit up and throw that bit towards the Earth, you will recoil slightly. If you've ever sat on a wheeled chair on a tiled floor and thrown a ball, your chair rolls backwards away from it. If we have the technology to dig bits of an asteroid up and fire them off into space, we have the technology to push asteroids around, which means we have the technology to turn a hit into a miss. And so it's one of these actually really nice occasions where commercial exploitation of a resource, in this case the asteroids, may also be something that, perhaps inadvertently, leads to the development of the techniques that can preserve the Earth. So not only would asteroid mining take a lot of the polluting industry away from the Earth and make conditions here better, but it also serves as a way of ensuring that asteroid impacts don't happen, that we can protect ourselves. And I I think that's a real positive to take away from something that otherwise would look a little bit like a corporate cash grab almost. We're going to claim the solar system for our own profit and our own well-being. Well, do so, but you're also protecting the Earth in the process. I think that's kind of a nice quid pro quo. Fantastic. That's awesome. Okay, well, let's move from planets to stars now and look at some of your stellar research. A couple of years ago, you wrote, I just read it yesterday, about the Galar survey. What instruments and techniques did Galar use and what did you discover with Galar, especially with that recent second data release? Galar is a fabulous, fabulous survey, and I'm really lucky to be a part of it. It's not my core research. This is a bit out on a limb. It's something a bit different. Galar is doing what we'd call galactic archaeology. It's really kind of cool. Basically, you have a situation where we can start to disentangle the history of the galaxy, the history of star formation, the narrative story of the city that we live in, essentially, through this new science of stellar archaeology, galactic archaeology. In much the same way as people like my partner, who love Time Team, see whenever they watch Tony Robinson and his mates digging around in a field to learn what the Romans were up to. It's the same kind of idea. What we're doing, and this is a project led by a number of people elsewhere in Australia, where I'm one of the observers, one of the people who dabble in, 
is using the Anglo-Australian Telescope again, that fabulous instrument down at Siding Spring Observatory, to take spectra of stars. And we talked about spectra earlier on. This is breaking down the light from a given star into its component colours, looking at the dark lines that are littered across that spectrum, and using that to determine the composition of the star's atmosphere to work out what elements it contains, something we call the elemental abundances of a star. How much lithium, how much nickel, how much carbon, things like this we can detect in their atmospheres. Where this takes us is that there is an incredible instrument on the AAT called Hermes, which allows you to get light from 400 stars at once into your spectrograph. Yep. So what we do is we point this big telescope, 4 meter diameter mirror, well 3.9 meter diameter mirror, at a field of stars in the night sky. There's a little robot on Hermes that moves fiber optic cables on the detector around, so each one sits on top of a given star in the field of view. And it takes about half an hour to set that up, but it's got a plate like this on both sides. So your robot sets up using these little star bug things, moves around the fibers until they sit where the light from the stars is going to fall. And then you put the light from the stars onto that. The light goes into the fiber optic cables, into the spectrograph, and you get 400 spectras of those stars. You leave the camera exposing. You take typically half an hour exposure. That gets enough light in to get these spectra at high quality. And while that exposure is happening, the robot is crawling around on the other side of the instrument, moving fiber optic cables around there to set up the next field. Then at the end of your exposure, while the telescope moves to the next place you want to look, the plate turns over and you're ready to observe again. And in this way, over the course of a few years, we're able to get spectra not for tens of stars, but hundreds of thousands. Currently, I think there's more than 700,000 stars Galar has observed, and it's going up every time we get an observing sequence, every time we go and visit the telescope. What this allows us to do is look at the composition of stars all across the galaxy. They're in our neighborhood because the galaxy is fairly huge. But to look at the chemical compositions of them, to work out their temperatures, to work out the abundances of up to 30 different species within them, hydrogen, helium, lithium, all the rest. What this allows us to do is piece together the narrative of the history of how those stars formed, where they formed, how they've moved. Because stars don't form in isolation, they don't form on their own, they instead form in clusters. You get huge nebulae like the Orion Nebula, giving birth to clusters of hundreds, thousands of stars. And those stars gradually, over millions of years, disperse through the galaxy. They're spread out, they're nudged around, pulled around. And so by the time they're the age of the sun, the stars that formed with the sun will be distributed all around our galaxy. If we can look at those stars and we can measure their compositions, stars that form in a given cluster in a given nebula will all have exactly the same composition as each other, give or take, which will be different to the composition of stars that formed in a different cluster. The reason for that is that whenever a star dies, it returns material that it has processed to the cosmos. Stars turn hydrogen into helium at their cores. They can then turn helium into carbon, to nitrogen, to oxygen, and make the heavier and heavier elements. And then when they die, they return that material to the cosmos, which means that over time, the galaxy is becoming more and more metal-rich, which means that stars that form now are more rich in metals than stars that formed a billion years ago. Yep. You can add to that, though, that each star cluster forms in a unique environment. Maybe a star cluster forms where... During the formation process, a nearby star goes supernova and pollutes it with heavy metals. It sounds like science fiction, but that's exactly what happened in the case of the solar system. 
to give a lot of the radiogenic material that was incorporated into the planets and the asteroids. We see the signature of a nearby supernova in the chemistry of the rocks that make up the solar system. We also see the signature of the fiery death of two neutron stars that collided with one another 100 million years before and a thousand light years distant from the formation of the solar system because they produced a lot of the iodine, the gold and the uranium that is so abundant in the solar system. So that gives you a feel for how unique any given planetary system, any given star's formation is. But all the stars in a given cluster will be essentially the same. If we can measure the abundances of all these different elements for these stars, we can identify those ones that form together. We can piece together a narrative of star formation history of the galaxy. We can work out when the episodes of enhanced star formation happened. We can work out where different types of stars formed. We can look at tying together different groups of stars that are on entirely opposite sides of the sky that have a common origin. And that means we can learn a huge amount about the history of our galaxy from its very birth to the current day and potentially its future, all by being able to dig down through this incredibly vast data set. We can even hopefully, by looking at enough of these stars, identify any that may be true twins to the sun, stars that formed in the same birth cluster as the sun did, that four and a half thousand million years later just happened to be passing by closely enough that we can get data from them. I think that would be awesome. Can you imagine if we do find something that shares a common origin with the sun? I mean, how cool would that be? Here's one of our twins. Here's something that went to the same nursery we did four and a half billion years on. I think that'd be great. Oh, that's astonishing. It's like you're taking fingerprinting and DNA analysis onto a galactic scale. It's awesome. That's pretty much the best way you can describe it. Every star has this unique fingerprint in the spectral lines. Tells you its composition, tells you its history. Just like you can look at the face of your loved ones and you can read something about their history, about their life story on that face. It's the same kind of thing from the stars. It's fabulous. It certainly is. And speaking of loved ones, meteor showers. Sometimes when I'm out there looking at meteor showers, I'm absolutely loving it. But I'm also thinking that we're setting up unrealistic expectations for novice observers by calling them showers Tell us about your history with meteor showers. You mentioned them earlier, Jonty. Yeah, these are something that I've always been passionate about. And as a kid, as an amateur astronomer, probably my favourite thing to do wasn't look through telescopes, but rather it was to sit under a clear night sky and watch meteors, to just observe shooting stars, observe meteor showers. On any clear night of the year, if you go out under a dark sky, you'll let your eyes adapt to the darkness. You'll see maybe up to five or six meteors per hour. Again, they're like buses. You'll wait half an hour and three will come along at once. That's usually the rule of thumb. But at certain times of year, you'll see more. You'll see a meteor shower. You might see 10 an hour. If you're really lucky, you might see 50 or even 100 an hour. Once in a blue moon, a few times a century, you might see tens of thousands per hour. That's a meteor storm, and I'm desperate to see one of those. But what you're seeing with this kind of thing is dust burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. That's your meteors, that's your shooting stars. Certain times of year, we go through regions of the solar system that are particularly dusty, particularly dirty. More dust enters the atmosphere, more meteors are seen. Now, whenever a comet goes close to the sun, gets hot enough that the surface material boils off into space, essentially. The ice goes from solid to gas, carrying with it dust. That gives a coma to the comet, gives it a tail, and the dust that is shed 
will gradually spread out around the comet's orbit, cladding it in dust, causing these tubes of dust to be littered through the solar system, essentially. When the Earth crosses that dust, when the Earth passes through one of those streams, you get more dust entering the atmosphere, you therefore get more meteors. That's when you get your meteor showers. That's what you're seeing when you get a meteor shower, when you're seeing tens or 100 per hour. And what you see is that these meteors in a given shower appear to radiate out from a single point on the night sky or a small area in the sky. The Orionid meteor shower, for example, yep. radiates from Orion. The Geminids from Gemini, the Perseids from Perseus, and so on. Yep. What you're seeing there is the effect of perspective. You have all these dust grains moving around the sun, sharing the orbit with the comet that they were born from, but spread out a bit in space. As the Earth crosses the dust, it might take a week or a month to pass through it, and that's why the meteor shower lasts a week or a month. Yep. All those dust grains are moving in the same direction. As they enter the Earth's atmosphere, they're moving essentially parallel to one another, but they're coming closer and closer to you. So it's a matter of perspective that they appear to spread out in the sky. The analogy here really is to imagine that you're stood on a bridge over a busy freeway, and you're stood right over the central divider there. The different lanes of traffic moving along the freeway are moving parallel to each other. If they didn't, they'd crash into each other, and that would be a bad thing. Yep. But from your perspective, they appear to converge to a single point on the horizon. If there are trees by the road, those trees too will converge to that same point. It's the radiant point. Yep. And the same show of the dust bit in reverse. It's coming towards you, so it spreads out from that point. The Geminid meteors come from Gemini, so that dust is travelling to us from that direction. I guess another analogy, given that we're in the winter and there was a high-profile snow event last week, is if you're driving through a snowstorm, the snowflakes are all moving in the same direction, but they seem to spread in all directions as they approach your windscreen. Same kind of idea. So when we see meteor showers, we're seeing debris laid down by comets, or in the case of the Geminids, actually an asteroid, asteroid Phaeton, which is like a rock comet. It sheds dust. Because it gets so close to the sun, it gets hot on the surface, cracks and fractures as it heats up and cools down again. I just love going out and sitting out there and watching them. You know, you're seeing something that is ephemeral. It's in the atmosphere. It's transient. But you're seeing fragments of comets, fragments of asteroids, stuff that was maybe shed hundreds of years, thousands of years ago. With the Utraquarids, with the Orionids, you're seeing fragments of the most famous comet, Comet Halley, hitting the Earth's atmosphere and burning up harmlessly. You're seeing a fragment, a piece of a comet. I think that's spectacular. And we can predict when these things happen. Because as the Earth goes around the sun, it passes across these streams of debris at the same location every time. As it goes around the Earth, it reaches a point in its orbit where it comes near to Comet Halley's orbit. You get a meteor shower. It passes through the dust. So, for example, the Geminids, which are probably our best annual shower from Australia, are active in the first two weeks of December every year, where they peak around the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, thereabouts. And even like this year, 2019, it's going to be full moon. Conditions won't be ideal. But even with the full moon, you'll still be able to see 20 or 30 meters an hour at the night of maximum in the early hours of the morning. So I always like to get out there and observe these things. I think they're fabulous. And I love how they link to my research as well. Fantastic, Jaunty. Now, back to you now, just for a little bit. You're a huge proponent of outreach without even mentioning all of those great stories and articles that you continually write for The Conversation. Tell us about some of the range of research you enjoy and why it's so important to you and others. I think the research I do is really interesting, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing it. I'm very lucky I get to do my hobby as a job. 
And there's a lot of value that comes out of astronomy research that people don't immediately realize. You've got what is probably actually the most important part is inspiring the next generation of scientists, inspiring the next generation of researchers. Getting people hooked and excited, fascinated with the night sky is really important because that's where we get the next generation of engineers. It's where we get the people who will fix the problems that are coming in the coming decades, some of which we probably don't even realize are there at the moment. We also have the benefits of astronomy research in that it drives the development of new detectors, of new technologies, of new analysis techniques that then trickle down into other fields. If you're a doctor in a hospital, day to day, you're saving lives. You're doing something vitally important for society, but you're so up against the wall, healing people, looking after them, that you can't take time to develop a new camera that is better at looking at something. Astronomers have to develop better cameras for looking at something because we're looking at the faintest, the hardest to detect signals in the universe. We're really pushing technology to its limits and beyond, and in the process, developing new technology. And that technology then trickles down and becomes an important part of day-to-day life. A lot of the technology that goes into the cameras that you carry around in your phones in your pocket has come from the development of astronomical instrumentation 20, 30 years ago. That trickle-down is really important. But I think the communication side of thing is vital to me. If I hadn't had the opportunity of meeting people at the Astronomy Society, if I hadn't had the opportunity of going to these incredible talks by professional astronomers, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't be having this discussion because it's that opportunity, it's that communication that helped me get through the school years, helped me maintain my interest in science and grow on that. That's really important. And if I can do that for someone else, if I can communicate my passion and excitement to the next generation of scientists and help get them inspired, that's probably more valuable than any of the research I will ever do. That's a much bigger contribution. And I'm as you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about doing this because I think it is the single most important thing we can do. It's also great fun, which is definitely another reason for doing it. But it's vital to do that. It's vital to go out to the people who essentially pay our wages as researchers through taxpayers. It's vital to go out to them and tell them what we're doing so that they can see what their money's being spent on. It is really important. And I do wish more of my colleagues had the opportunities to do it. And I do wish we actually spent more time training researchers to communicate effectively and enthusiastically and passionately. There is a move towards that. The new generation of scientists coming through are far more savvy when it comes to social media towards communication than generations past. And there is a shift in the academic community to recognizing the value of outreach. But I think there's a way to go yet. And I think we should really treasure those fabulous communicators we have who not only do great science, but also, like I say, inspire the next generation and show that Anybody can do science. You don't have to be from a particular background. You don't have to come from a particular region. Science is universal, and the more people we can get involved, the better. Exactly, and if I was to hazard a guess, I'd be saying that your PhD students will come away with not only good research skills, but good communication skills. Now, thank you, Jonty. The microphone is all yours now, and you have the opportunity. (laughs) I know it's been yours all afternoon. You have the opportunity now to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or career paths or equity, diversity. There's a huge range. Our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach itself. The mic's all yours. Oh, we could talk for hours here because there's so <laughs> many things we can talk about. 
Actually, science denial is not something that hits us very often in astronomy directly. Yeah, there are some people who are convinced that the moon landings didn't happen. Yeah. But they're viewed as being very niche. They're not really supported. So we are very privileged in astronomy in that we get to talk about things without them usually getting too controversial. Like, say, Pluto maybe being the exception. We're very, very fortunate in that. But we do still get questions that are challenging. We do sometimes get questions that confront where science stands. And I think one of the things that bugs me a little bit is when scientists get sniffy about answering those questions. Because that's not the way to handle it. I can understand why people do, because once an idea is deeply enmeshed in your consciousness, even if it's an incredibly complex concept, you think it's easy. And so why can't people get it? But you're much more likely to get your message across if you answer questions thoughtfully, compassionately, try and understand where people are coming from than you will do if you just brush them off and call them stupid. And it does bug me occasionally when you see certain high-profile scientists getting quite confrontational and quite sniffy with people who've asked a genuinely well-intentioned question. And I've had questions about faith, questions about religion, questions about aliens. And they're genuine questions. People genuinely want to know the answer. And I do think this is something that stretches more widely and possibly stretches to discussions when we're talking to children, when we're teaching kids. Questions are everything. You should never feel bad about asking a question. You should never feel bashful or embarrassed. If you don't know the answer to something, how are you going to find it out if you don't ask the question? When you give talks to kids, when you give talks to primary school children, the questions come thick and fast. They are so curious. They want to know everything. But by the teenage years, a lot of them stop asking questions. They might still want to know the answer, but they're embarrassed. They don't want to look stupid. And I think that's a real tragedy. And any time you tell someone they've asked a stupid question, you're perpetuating that. You're kind of building on this myth that to ask a question is to look stupid. I yeah. ask questions all the time. It's my job. I, as a researcher, are employed to question everything. Why this? Why that? What does this mean? We've observed this. How does it work? And... I'd love people to ask more questions and to answer a question to which you know the answer with the compassion that is due the fact that the person who's asking you it wants to know the answer. They're not stupid because they don't know something that you don't know, because nobody knows everything. And so I think it's something that I really try and encourage my colleagues to do, I think, is to ask a question on face value, to not assume that there's anything behind it, there's any hidden motivation, but also not to get stressed by it and also tied into that, if someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, say that you don't know the answer. Yep. You don't have to create this ethos and this myth that you know everything. You don't have to be the all-knowing jaunty. If you don't know it, you say, I don't know, that's a really good question. Something I'd like to look into in more detail. And the thing is, those questions are often the best because they give you new research ideas. They give you new routes to follow to take your research and explore new things. You touched in the question on lots of things I'm kind of passionate about. I get excited about everything, I think. One that's a real issue for the astro community at the minute is increasing our equity and diversity. Ensuring that everybody who wants to have the opportunity to get involved in science can do. And I'm to some degree aware of this in that I come from a working class area, an underprivileged area. And yet I've still got to where I've got to. So I have a little bit of personal investment in that and being able to show that if you go to a school that is in a low socioeconomic area that's low aspiration, you can inspire those kids and they can do what they want with their futures. They don't have to stay with the problems that they grow up with. They don't have to stay in that kind of area. 
but we have a certain degree of a problem in astronomy in that we're very male-dominated and we're very white male-dominated. So when you see people talking on the TV about this, it's nearly always, old white man says this. And that's great. We have great communicators. But I have colleagues who are incredible communicators who are female, who speak very eloquently on the importance of female role models, on the importance of, as a young girl, being able to see, hey, I can do this. This is important to me. There are a number of non-white astronomers around the world who are doing the same thing, showing that you can come from any background. It isn't just the provenance of middle-class white males. Anybody can do this. And it is very important to have a very diverse set of people out there communicating to ensure that everybody has the opportunity to get involved with this. It's not saying everybody has to by any means, but it's just showing that astronomy is a people thing. It's everybody's playground, not just the playground of the privileged few, I guess. And I'm actually astronomy is brilliant for that because you don't need to be rich to do astronomy. You don't need to be privileged. Anybody can go out on a clear night and look at the night sky and gaze with wonder wherever you are. If you're far away from streetlights, you get a better view. If you have binoculars, you can see things you can't with your naked eye. But at a fundamental level, it's a great leveler. Everybody can do this, whether you're educated or whether you have no schooling, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're young, whether you're old. Everybody can get involved. And the more that we can spread that word and the more that we can get people out under the night skies, I think the better for everybody involved. And that comes too to recognising the input from the many cultures across the planet, the many different peoples who have gazed at the night sky and wonder and built their own narratives and their own science around that. And I'm really not the person to talk about that. My understanding had Kristen Banks on one of the podcasts in the past. We have these incredible indigenous Australian scientists coming through who are coupling their traditional knowledge and using that to learn more about the night sky. And we're realizing from that with the work those people are doing with Dwayne Hamacher, Dr. Dwayne Hamacher, who's one of the leading lights in this, yep. that there is a huge wealth of knowledge stored in the oral histories in the oral narratives of a lot of the world's traditional owners that contains information that spans a time scale that we can't address with the Western science, with modern astronomical observations. We've only been using telescopes to study the night sky for 400 years. We've only been recording science in the kind of post-Renaissance Western fashion for 400 years. And so the knowledge that stars can vary, just as one example, is a relatively recent thing in that sense. The first people who recognised the variability of the stars were two or three hundred years ago, and that's what an astronomy textbook would tell you. What Dwayne and his colleagues have found is that in indigenous astronomy within Australia, the knowledge of stellar variability has been there not for a few hundred years, but for thousands of years. Yes. Described eloquently, very clearly detailed. And A, we need to recognise that. We need to recognise that knowledge for what it is, but it's also such a treasure trove for us as researchers because it takes us beyond the timescale of telescopic observation. There are things that happen in the cosmos on timescales longer than a human lifetime, and that's not a surprise because we're a very short-lived species. We live for 100 years, if we're lucky, in a cosmos that is billions of years old. So we're only seeing very short-term variations. If we have a reliable source of information that goes back thousands of years, suddenly we can get information on variability on timescales of thousands of years. And it opens up whole new vistas for research. And I think the way that Dwayne and his colleagues, the way that Kristen Bantz and people like that are doing research, bringing in that traditional knowledge, 
is so valuable because it tells us information we have no access to any other way. We do this with comets. We look back to see if a comet that we see this year has been seen in the past. We go back to ancient Chinese and Babylonian records. That's how we know that Comet Halley has been seen since at least 240 BC. We take advantage of knowledge from other cultures. And I think whilst it's not my own research, the work that has been done there that's tying together astronomy and traditional knowledge is incredibly valuable and incredibly exciting. And whenever I get to go to a conference where those people are talking, I sit there open-mouthed, absolutely wrapped at some of the things that are known that we do not realise are known. That kind of knowledge transfer is so important. And, yeah, just encourage everybody to look this up. I know Dwayne has written a number of articles, again, for the conversation that talk about some of this knowledge in the Australian context, and they're well worth people looking up. Fantastic. So many echoes of what we're doing here in what you've just been speaking. Um, If I can have a brag moment, we've done over 80 episodes and over half of them are women astronomers. Awesome. From early, middle and late stage career paths and from 15 or 20 different nationalities so we're waving the flag the same as you Jonty. Now is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? There's always more to come and I mean one of the beauties of being an astronomer is the unexpected so at some point in the future there will be a naked eye supernova, a star will explode in our galaxy and we'll see it happen. We don't know where, we don't know when. Things like that I really look forward to. The chance to see something like that would be great. One thing I'm really excited about, and I'm already starting to tentatively put plans together for, is that there is a potential, and it should be stressed, it is only the potential, of a great meteor storm in 2022. Wow. There's a little meteor shower called the Tau Hercules that nobody's ever heard of because on an average year you get one per hour. They're really minor, barely detectable. But they're linked to a comic called Schwashman Wachman 3. It's one of the periodic comets. It's got a number that's just escaped me. But back in 1995, this comet fell apart. It disintegrated. And we're currently tracking more than 60 separate fragments of it moving around the sun. When it disintegrated, it liberated a vast amount of dust as well as the larger fragments. And because there's a meteor shower associated with the comet, we know that the Earth's orbit comes close to the comet's orbit. What that means is that eventually we have the opportunity to run through the dust that was liberated by that fragmentation. And a number of studies have suggested that in 2022, we might plow right through the middle of it. Now, we're not going to run into any of the big bits, and it's not going to be Armageddon-type situation. But there is a very real potential that in May 2022, the Tau Hercules will outburst, producing a shower that could be 100,000 meters per hour. That will be best visible, as we can tell at the minute, from locations in the middle of the Atlantic. So... For observers in Europe, the storm will begin at around dawn. For observers on the east coast of the US, the outburst will probably happen just as the radiant is rising low in the sky in the evening. But if you can get to one of the islands in the middle of the Atlantic, the Azores, for example, or the Cape Verde Islands, that might be the place to go for your holidays and just hope that it's clear. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to, over the next year or two, keep my eyes on the research as they narrow it down and play with the odds. But... For me, as someone who's spent my life watching meteor showers, to see a true storm, which could be potentially the best storm for two or three hundred years if the forecasts prove to be well-founded, I just can't turn that down. I've got to do everything I can to be there. So I'm really looking forward to that. 
more from a research point of view, I'm really excited about the direction that the test mission is going and our involvement with it. We're fully up to speed with Minerva Australis now. We're observing every single night that it's clear, all night, every night. And what that means is that we are going to be playing a role in the detection of the next generation of exoplanets. We're going to be helping to find all these alien worlds and learn more about them. And that is going to link in over the next decade or so with the next generation of astronomical observatories on the ground. We're going to have the dawn of the 30-meter telescopes, the biggest ground-based telescopes ever made. In space, we have the potential that one day the James Webb Space Telescope will actually launch. Now, yes. <laughs> when I was doing my PhD, we were told that was about 10 years away. And it's been going back at a rate of one year per year. But I think people are hoping it will go up now in 2122, something yep. like that. I'm a little sceptical. It will get up there eventually, and when that does go up there, it has the potential to tell us a lot more about these planets that we're finding. So I think the research is going to be exciting. We're going to find things that we couldn't possibly imagine. Because one thing that is true of astronomy more than anything other is every time you get a new instrument, every time you can look at the cosmos in a new way, you discover things you could have never imagined, and they open up whole new vistas into the narrative of the universe, into how we came to be here and our place in the cosmos. And that is going to continue for the next years, for the next decades, and we'll learn huge things. If you think about it, going back to when I was a kid, we didn't know if the Earth was unique. We didn't know if the solar system was alone. We now know that planets are ubiquitous. We now know that they're everywhere. We had the discovery of the first gravitational waves a few years ago. Yes, That's going to open up a brand new vista to science. Whole new observations that we could never do before are going to happen from that. We have the Square Kilometre Array coming on board, which is going to revolutionise radio astronomy. We've got this fabulous future in front of us, and it's a really exciting time to be alive. You know, if I if I can live long enough, I'd love to make it to about 150. Uh, <laughs> might be a bit of a challenge, because in 2126, Comet Halley will come past the Earth and be spectacular. It's back around in 2061, and it'll be quite good, but in 2126, it's going to be awesome. So uh -huh. I want to hang around for that one. And in 2135, we have Comet Swift-Tuttle coming near the Earth, which will be even better. So I'd like to hang around for that. And if I can make it to 150, everybody will be surprised, not least me, but that will be an awesome way to go out. Way to go. Well worth waiting for. Well, I've been sitting here with this huge smile on my face for well over two hours now, Jonty, and it is time for us to thank you very much, Professor Jonty Horner researcher and astro raconteur on behalf of our listeners it's been truly fabulous speaking with you thank you so much for your time and we'll encourage all listeners to follow jonty on twitter he does fabulous posts as at jonty horner j-o-n-t-i-h-o-r-n-e-r on twitter and to easily access his 80 plus articles and stories he's published with the conversation, simply go to tinyearl.com forward slash hey jaunty. That's tinyearl.com forward slash h-e-y-j-o-n-t-i, or lowercase, or one word. He is very informative, and as you know now, most entertaining as well. Thank you so much, Jonty. Thank you very much for having me, Brendan. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully get to talk to you again at some point in the future. Definitely do that. Thanks, Jonty. Bye now. Bye-bye. And now, as promised, we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr Ian Astroblog-Musgrave to hear What's Up, Doc? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? 
Very well, thank you. And great to have you back in Australia again. It is indeed. I found Hawaii very interesting. It's interesting to have the moon upside down from our point of view and seeing Jupiter above Scorpio rather than below Scorpio as seen from the Australian point of view. Fantastic. It was really good. I enjoyed it. Very good. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Well, the sky is a little bit sadder in terms of planets than it's been for a while. We are left with just two planets facing our evening sky. Venus, Mercury and Mars are all too close to the sun to see. Actually, that's not quite true. I'll tell you about Mars in a moment. But... Jupiter and Saturn are still bright and beautiful. Jupiter is uh, well positioned for observation uh, end of uh, astronomical twilight to around about midnight. Saturn is past uh, opposition when it was its biggest and brightest, but it is still in a very good position for observation, still nicely upright, and uh, is well worth uh, in small telescopes. Now, Saturn is actually a bit special because um, on the 12th of August, from the point of view of Australia and New Zealand, uh, Saturn will be occulted by the Moon. Um, sadly, this is visible only to Australia, New Zealand and some uh, Pacific islands. Uh, the rest of the world misses out. But, uh, and even in Australia, it's only really visible in the east coast, uh, north of Canberra and North Island, New Zealand, and to some degree in Papua New Guinea. Nonetheless, uh, it's still uh, quite nice, still worthwhile uh, having a look at. The uh, occultation begins between astronomical twilight and and, uh, nautical twilight. For those of us who are further south, um, in South Australia and in Victoria, Tasmania, Although we don't get to see the occultation, we do get to see the moon spectacularly close to Saturn, and this will be a very good telescopic opportunity. Uh, Venus is now too close to the sun to observe. Uh, Mercury is too close to the sun to observe. It will return to the morning skies later on in the month, but not the next fortnight. On the 2nd of August, uh, when the day after this uh, broadcast will go out, the thin crescent moon and, and Mars can be seen low in the, uh, in the twilight. You'll probably need binoculars to see Mars, and you'll need a flat-level horizon like a desert or ocean in order to be able to see it. But after that, Mars is effectively too difficult to find, and we won't see it again until it appears in the morning sky a bit later on. Very good. The sky itself is really beautiful at the moment if you have an opportunity to uh, have a look. Um, as soon as the uh, sky is completely dark, we have the Milky Way and a large number of clusters are available to uh, scan with binoculars. So until um, the end of the fortnight, this will be an excellent time to get your binoculars out, go for a scan of the Milky Way, have a good look around Scorpio and Sagittarius, the depot, lots of interesting things there. If you're in the southern hemisphere, now is a brilliant time to hunt Omega Centauri. Omega Centauri is the possibly the finest lobular cluster 
in the sky and you can see it not far from the pointers. And then if you sweep your binoculars down past the Southern Cross, there's lots and lots of beautiful little clusters and nebula to delight yourself until the moon becomes too bright for you to see what's going on. So first quarter moon is uh, the 8th and the full moon is on the 15th. Well, I went out tonight, Ian, and the Magellanic clouds are looking beautiful as well. Oh, that must be fantastic. I went out tonight and it was completely clouded over. But anyway, now is a brilliant time to go out and look. But still, even if you're under suburban skies, things like the Els Kite in Scorpio is really easy to see with binoculars, even under suburban skies. But I should also point out that in this fortnight would be the time to see the Perseid meteor shower. Now, from the, from the southern hemisphere's point of view, the Perseid meteors are a bit of a waste of time. You have to be effectively north of Rockhampton to see any decent rates, with the best rates in Australia being seen in Cairns and Darwin. This year is not going to be such a good year for the Perseids, very close to the full moon. So there'll be a lot of washout, but even so, for a little, if you're in the northern hemisphere and you've got a bit of patience, head out on the night of the 12th and see what you can see. You won't see as many as you would on a moonless night, but if you manage to put the, put the our moon behind a, a big object so it's not directly dazzling your eyes, you should be able to see a decent rate of meteors. Very good, Ian. Well, good night, mate. Good night, mate. We will see you in two weeks' time. Excellent. Okay. Now, our news is truncated today because I'm pretty determined to keep our podcasts under 60 minutes. So I'll just give you the summary and provide the web link for you. One. Ironically, given Jonty's presentation today about rogue asteroids, we hear that we had a near-miss asteroid transit between the Earth and the Moon's orbit, which was not detected until after the flyby. Whoops! No need for Bruce Willis and the nuclear option, though, lol. That article is at tinyearl.com forward slash haha missed. That's all lowercase, all one word. Two, the Minerva Australis Exoplanet Search and Follow-Up Facility led by Professor Horner at the University of Southern Queensland, Mount Kent Observatory, has seen first light and been commissioned. That story is at tinyearl.com forward slash Minerva dash Australis, or lowercase. 3. Congratulations to the people in the Australian outback who thought they had witnessed an alien spacecraft, and to Jonty again, who explained in the media how they had actually seen the Indian Moon Mission launch. That rather amusing story is at tinyearl.com forward slash sorry, not aliens, or lowercase, or one word. Four, bigger congratulations to the Indian space agency ISRO for their fabulously successful launch for their mission to put their rover and lander on the south pole of the moon. There's a great story about the trajectory they are taking at tinyearl.com forward slash 
Indian moon launch, all lowercase, all one word. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!